we go. It wasn't that long ago I was doing a wedding, and we get to the point in the wedding where vows are exchanged, and then I turn to the groom and I say, what do you bring as a symbol of these vows? And he says, this ring. He turns to the best man, he gets the ring, he hands it to me, and this is a double ring ceremony, so I turn to the bride, and I say, what do you bring as a symbol of your vows? She says, this ring, and she turns to the maid of honor, and a blank stare, absolute deer-in-the-headlights stare. She forgot the ring. It's in the glove compartment of a car in the parking lot. So here we are. So I took my ring off and gave it to her to give to me, to give to the groom, and he wore my ring for the duration of the ceremony until he could get it off. Um, Hey, remembering is really important, okay? (laughs) Remembering is really important. Here's why. If you don't remember, you can't do. This is just that simple. If you don't remember, you can't do. And in the Bible, those two things come together such that to remember in biblical language, is to do. And if you remember back to when we studied the book of Deuteronomy a while back, that's a common theme. In Deuteronomy 8, it says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments. Um, They're interrelated. You forget God when you don't obey because to remember is, is to do. And I I raise all this. Matter of fact, if you go just a couple more verses more, it makes that connection explicit. It says, like the nations that the Lord makes perish before you, so you shall perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. To forget is to fail to obey. To remember is to do. It is to obey God. Um, So the big question today is, have you forgotten what God has been saying to you through the gospel of Matthew this year. Is it possible that you have forgotten what God has been saying to you? And let me just be honest, it's beyond possible. It's likely that you've forgotten. I know it's a struggle. I preach the sermons most week, and I forget from week to week what it is that God is saying to me. James warns us, though, not to be hearers only, but to be doers of the word. So what we want to do today is try to review the first 20 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew that we've studied so far this year. Now, that I I calculated out is about 40 messages. So I'm going to do about a sermon a minute for you uh, today in the time that we have together. You might wonder, how am I going to do that? And... uh, let me uh, show you by way of analogy. We were Last weekend, we were up in Boone, uh, where my daughter's in college now. We were visiting her for family weekend. We camped on the Blue Ridge Parkway at a place called Price Lake, and it's a beautiful hike, one of my favorite hikes along there because it's flat, and you get to hike around this lake. It's absolutely <laughs> fabulous, um, but uh, my, my son-in-law and my youngest son, Josiah, found out that there were skipping stones all around this placid little lake. And so they're skipping stones, having competitions, frustrating the fishermen all around the lake, skipping stones. Josiah skipped one about 15 times, which was, I thought, pretty impressive. Um, and then the old man kind of had to step up, school the boys a little bit. Here you go, watch this. Yeah, baby. 
We're, uh, that's real footage. We're talking 51 times, um, and that was not this old man. That was some other old, old man. Um, but that's something like what I'm going to do to you today. We are going to skip through 20 chapters of Matthew, and we're going to spend, we're going to have a little more distance than the first few skips as we get towards the end of these 20 chapters. I'll go fast in the hope that you remember well what God has been saying to you. Um, but I don't care if you don't walk away with a great outline of Matthew. Our focus is singular. What have you learned about Jesus that makes you want to follow him more? What is Jesus, your good and mighty king, asking of you through Matthew? You don't want to forget. Um, that's a very dangerous thing spiritually. You want to remember. And I'm hoping that today I'll be a prompt, useful in God's hands, to remind you of that which God has been saying to you. So if you would, um, well, let me say one other thing. You're going to realize that I'm, not, I'm skipping a lot. Okay, the, the stones are skipping far today. And I may skip a passage that was really what was powerfully used to you. Or you may be a guest today, and you may not be familiar with the sermons that lie behind some of the things we're talking about. All of the messages in, in, in Matthew are available on our website online. This might be a good week to go back and review one that is particularly, God has particularly used to press on you what your obedience should look like. So, but right now, let's pray, and then we'll open up our Bibles to Matthew 1 and start skipping. Father, have mercy on us. We are forgetful people. Um, we are rebellious people. We don't want to remember sometimes. I pray today that your spirit in his, in his good and beautiful way would break us of that and remind us of what you are calling us to be and put gladness in our hearts to obey you, to actually do the word that is proclaimed to us. Give us ears to hear and faith to obey. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me encourage you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. This, this is a great day to have your Bible in your lap so you can just flip through it as we run through these 20 chapters or so. Um, but when we start at the very beginning of Matthew, you'll notice that Matthew begins with a genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And um, a genealogy is a snapshot of people. If you looked at your genealogy, every name you saw would bring to mind a picture and a story of your uncles and your aunts and your grandma and grandpa and people like that. And in every name in this genealogy of Jesus, there's a story that's to be told. And some of them are expected. Um, good kings like David, of course, Abraham, the man of faith. Good kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, we would expect to find them in the genealogy of Jesus. But if you remember when we looked at this way back at the beginning of the year, there's some surprises in this genealogy. There are downright wicked kings in the genealogy of Jesus. Guys like Manasseh and Ahaz who burned their own sons in the fire as an offering to false gods are in the genealogy of Jesus. What are they doing in the genealogy of Jesus? And what we learned was that it is a tangible demonstration of the sovereign, unstoppable goodness of God. That he takes what was meant for evil and he's going to redeem it for good. And even these wicked kings are useful to bring Christ to our world. That's how sovereign our God is. 
You continue through that genealogy, you run across the names of a handful of women, which is really unusual. You don't find the names of women in these ancient genealogies often, especially not women like these women. They, on the one hand, were women of questionable reputation. All of them had some kind of sexual controversy swirling around their reputation, whether deserved or not. And in addition to that, well, perhaps a classic example of that is a lady in there. Her name is Rahab. She's known as Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. That's her reputation. That's what she's known for. And here she is in the genealogy of Jesus. Not only were they women of questionable morality in some's eyes, um, they were also all Gentile women. They weren't Jews. And Matthew is reminding us that even though he's writing a gospel that's towards the Jews, it's ultimately for all peoples. You also look around in this genealogy, you find names of people like Abiud and Akim and Methan, and we know nothing about them. I don't even know how to pronounce their names. I just made that up. Okay. We know nothing about them. They might have been kings or they might have been plumbers. They had plumbers back in Jesus' day. We don't know. We know nothing. All we know is that they are nobodies whose names are listed as people who are useful to God in bringing Christ to the world. Okay. When we looked at this, that was one of the challenges we walked away with is, will you be available to God that you could be listed in the name of people who are willingly useful to God, intentionally useful to God, to bring Christ to your world, to your friends who don't believe yet, to family members who don't believe yet, to people that you love and meet and care about that don't know Christ yet. Will you be listed in that name, that long list of people who are useful in bringing Christ's name to the world? That's one of the things that came to us from there. That may be what God is pressing you about, to be useful to Him, to speak of Him, to pray for friends who don't know Christ yet. This is how Matthew starts things off. Um, and then in chapter 2 of Matthew, we find kind of what we could call a tale of two kings. It's the tale of King Jesus and King Herod. It says, when Herod the king heard about the birth of Jesus, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. He was so troubled when the, after the wise men had come and they had evaded him, not come back and reported about where Jesus was, that he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men. He became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. So at this time, Herod is so provoked by the news about Jesus' birth that he's willing to murder infants. Why is Herod so provoked by Jesus? And, and I, I suggested that it's because he knows that he is Herod the Great no more. He has been dethroned by the true great king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Jesus. Herod, Herod sees Jesus as a rival. It's interesting that the, the Magi, Herod had the same information as the Magi. They submitted to Christ in worship. He would not, and it led to him murdering babies. You know, we are not like Herod, for sure, or we wouldn't be here this morning. But yet there is a part of us that does oppose Jesus. Whenever we disobey Jesus, we become rivals to Jesus' lordship in our lives. 
and we nurture and feed what I called our inner Herod. Okay? Are you feeding your inner Herod with a protected area of disobedience that you simply will not do what God is asking you to do? Your rivalry with King Jesus will take you places you do not want to go. Is that what he's reminding you of this morning? Of an area of disobedience that needs to be brought to him? Well, in chapters 3 and 4, the king's ministry, King Jesus' ministry begins. And in chapter 3, John the Baptist is making the way for Jesus. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John's purpose is to get people ready for that coming of Jesus, okay? to make them ready for the coming of the King of Kings. He wants everybody to be ready, and he does it with one word. He said, if you want to be ready for the coming of the King, this is what you have to do, repent. That's how you get ready. You repent. And Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines repentance this way. He says, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. John says, the most important thing you can do to get ready for Jesus, whether it's his first coming or now as we wait for his second coming, the most important thing to do is to repent. When was the last time that you remember truly repenting of your sins with a heartfelt sorrow for it, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ? Is that what God is reminding you about this morning? That you too need to repent. There's some specific things you need to repent of. A little farther along in chapter 3, Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, <clears throat> and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so, for our sake, God shines a threefold spotlight on Jesus. The heavens are open, the Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father's affirming voice is heard from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, when we went through this, we wrestled with the question, why is the Father so pleased with the Son? What, what makes God so happy with Jesus at His baptism at this point? And in a word, I said that it was His humility, His, his lowness. And this shapes Jesus' whole life and ministry on earth. His lineage, which we just talked about, proves it. His birth proves it, born in an obscure village amongst animals. His choice of disciples proves proves it. He, he picks fishermen and tax collectors, not princes and rulers. His ministry amongst the poor and the outcasts proves it. He loved being with them. He would touch them and care for them. 
His submission to the Father proves it here at His baptism and at the cross. His silence before His accusers will prove it. He will make no rebuttal, no self-defense. His bearing of the cross ultimately proves it with certainty. He humbled Himself to death, even death on a cross. And so today, we look at this passage His baptism is a demonstration of his humility. In his baptism, Jesus is pointing to the cross where he would truly bear the sins of the world. He's declaring his mission of standing with sinners, even in the place of sinners, in his baptism. Now, the next chapter, chapter 4, Jesus is led from his baptism up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And as we read this story and it unfolds, three times Jesus is tempted by the devil. Excuse me. And with each question, or with each temptation rather, I encourage you to ask three questions. What's the bait that's set for Jesus? How is Satan luring him? What's at stake if Jesus takes the bait? And lastly, how will he respond? And that first temptation, as you remember it, the tempter came, said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He was ravenously hungry. But Jesus answered, it is written. And he quotes from Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone. Excuse me. You can read the rest. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the second temptation involved Jesus jumping off the temple to see if the angels would rescue him. The third temptation, he said, Satan said, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And in every single temptation, Jesus responded with scripture. He knew the appropriate scripture such that he could just quote it. And it wasn't just quoting it. He was submitted to it such that it ordered his life. It was a life-ordering confession for Jesus. He would not violate the Scriptures. And so as we looked at all these temptations of Jesus, we looked at the, a fourth temptation, which is your temptation. What's the bait that Satan is tempting you with? What's at stake if you take that bait? Your integrity? Your family, the the reputation of Christ, your communion with the Father, is that at stake? Is that what it will cost you? And how will you respond? Will you be able, relative to the temptation that comes, to cite the Scripture and obey the Scripture? To know what Scripture says and to be in submission to it such that it safeguards your soul. Dale Bruner pointed out that in all three temptations, Jesus gets his victory by using the common source accessible to the rest of us, Holy Scripture. Jesus does not resort to a direct line to heaven to get help from God. Instead, Jesus uses the same source we have, Scripture. So, is there a temptation that God wants to rescue you from by the use of Scripture to protect your soul? The next section is often called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, We could call it the King's Speech, and it goes from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. All of that is this great, greatest of sermons, and it starts with what we often call 
uh, the Beatitudes or the Blessed Bees, and it's an invitation to live a blessed life. And it comes in three sets that really advance three questions to us. Um, The first set is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These first four blessings bring a choice to us, and that choice is simply this. Will you take the low place? Will you be... Will you be numbered among those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who hunger for thirst and righteousness? Will you humble yourself? Will you take the low place? Second set of Beatitudes bring a similar question. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And the second question that we raised when we went through this was, will you be a celebrity or will you be a servant? Will you be numbered amongst the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers? Or will you be amongst the powerful, the celebrities, when it's all about you? Will you take the low place? Will you be a celebrity or a servant? And the third question from the Beatitudes revolves around these. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. And the third question is simply, are you willing to suffer to live a life blessed by God? Are you willing to suffer to live a life blessed by God? These three things, these three questions, press us from these beatitudes. Is one of those pressing you today? Is that what God wants you to remember and not forget from Matthew? Um, From this, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also moves to teaching us how to pray. The most familiar, probably, of prayers, Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to pray about big things. These are kind of cosmic kingdom things. We're praying that God's name would be hallowed, exalted, and declared as holy. We pray that his kingdom would come on the earth, that his will would be done as it is in heaven. And so the question is, are you praying those kinds of prayers? Do you pray for the expansion of God's kingdom, his rule to come on this earth in the lives of people you know and care about in your own life? Are you praying those kinds of prayers? There's a second set of requests in the Lord's Prayer as well. It says, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And these are much more personal matters, matters of bread, forgiveness, and deliverance, provision, mercy, and protection for daily physical needs, for grace for our sins, and to give grace to those who sin against us, for rescue from Satan who is setting all these traps and snares for us. Um, And we talked about praying this way for the broader kingdom and for our personal needs in a way that's intentional, in a way that involves a time and place, not just while you're in your car on the way to work 
as valuable as that is, but you actually sacrifice time in addition to that to pray these kinds of prayers. And I ask you, could you show me that time in your calendar? Is it that important and that consistent that you mark it out and block it out on a daily basis as a way for you to pray prayers like Jesus taught us to pray? We talked about a weekly prayer guide. You may remember that where we folded a piece of paper in half and then half again and we had eight columns, one for each day of the week to prompt us to pray faithfully every day for those that God has put on our hearts. Is God reminding you to pray faithfully? Is that what he's calling you to do through this? Now, chapters 8 and 9, after, after the king's speech is done, contain a, a boatload of miracles, about 10 of them. And lepers are healed, centurion servants are healed, storms are calmed, demons cast out, men, paralyzed men are healed, little girls raised from the dead, uh, all kinds of miracles happen. In the middle of all these miracles, Jesus teaches us with great clarity what it really means to follow him. And he says in chapter 8, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side of the lake. And a scribe, a Bible teacher, comes up and volunteers. He says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So this guy comes and offers to follow Jesus, and Jesus turns him away by telling him, essentially, um, you're going to have to suffer if you follow me. It won't be comfortable. It won't be convenient. It's a life of sacrifice. Will you follow me, Jesus is asking him, if it costs you? If it costs you your comfort and your security, are you willing to follow me because it requires a sacrifice? If Jesus said this to you, would you still follow? If he said, you know, you're going to have nowhere to lay your head if you follow me, would you still follow? Would you be willing to sacrifice? Would you get in the boat with Jesus and follow? Now, a second volunteer comes up in the midst of this teaching. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first, before I follow you, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. It's not that Jesus is anti-family or anything like that, but it is about the absolute priority of Jesus over all things, even over family. So if I told you that to follow Jesus, you would have to suffer the loss of your family and that your dad would write you out of the will, would you be here next week? To follow Jesus is to be willing to sacrifice and to give him our supreme allegiance. It may be that God is reminding you and He's calling you to get in the boat with Jesus and follow without looking back. Now, chapter 9, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew, maybe the Matthew who wrote this gospel, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house... Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When they heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need, or excuse me, when he heard it, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
This is an amazing thing about the kingdom that Jesus is showing us. It's for sinners. Serious, professional sinners are welcomed in Jesus' presence. The commentators, one of them said that these are likely people like pimps and prostitutes and thieves and gamblers that Jesus is talking about. The Pharisees were scrupulous in excluding these people, yet Jesus' reputation was that he often associated with them. He came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And that, that brought to mind a couple of things. One, are you extending your friendship and grace to those outside of your comfort zone like Jesus did? And if you feel like you're outside of the circle that Jesus is inviting you in, no matter how dark your past, Jesus is inviting you in. He is offering to you a relationship with the king and a place in the kingdom. Jesus then, following this teaching, went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And you need to know, when you, when you are suffering the greatest, this is how Jesus feels about you. When you feel like your suffering has has removed you from God and he doesn't hear you anymore. This is how Jesus feels about you. He has compassion for you. And Jesus' compassion, whenever it describes it in the, in the New Testament, it always leads Jesus to act. He'll teach, he'll heal, he'll even raise the dead in response to compassion. And in this case, it's no different. He has a response in mind too as he sees the people's need. And in the few, next few verses says, Jesus said to his disciples, out of compassion, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. The action that Jesus was compelled to do by his compassion for people is that he would ask his disciples to pray, to pray that laborers would be sent out in to the harvest. His compassion drives him to act, and the great action that Jesus has is to call his disciples to pray. Pray that people will come and bear the good news of the Savior to them. How is your practice? It raises that question again. How's your practice of prayer? Are you faithful in praying that God would send out laborers to those who have never heard? Praying for those that God has sent out from Northwake to places where it's never heard. Now, immediately following this, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. He commissions them to go out and do great works and preach in his name and to suffer for his name's sake. And we watch, once they are sent out, opposition begins to really ramp up about chapters 12 and, uh, and 11 and 12. Opposition to Jesus is really ramping up such that... When Jesus did a miracle and all the people were amazed and they were saying, can this be the son of David? The Pharisees, the Bible teachers, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The Pharisees, they were the ones who were experts in keeping and protecting the law. And here they find themselves so at odds with Jesus that they say he's doing these things out, 
in league with the devil himself? How do you go from being a protector and teacher of the Bible to saying Jesus is in league with the devil? Um, why, why would anyone oppose Jesus? Why would we oppose Jesus, even in little ways? And I think it has to do with the fact that they have focused not on the heart of the matter, but on the rule of the matter. Not on the center of the heart of God, but on their rules they had set up to protect the Word of God. They were focused on externals, not on internals. They were focused on what they needed to do and protect the Word, not what it meant to do the Word and believe in Jesus. And so they missed Jesus such that they were even plotting to kill Him. Um, Jesus healed a man. He said, stretch out your hand. In chapter 12, and the man stretched it out, was restored, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to kill him. Jesus heals a man, and they find themselves wanting to kill him because he had done it on the Sabbath. See, the rule had become more important than the heart of the matter, and they missed Jesus. And Jesus is the center. Jesus is what matters. Is Jesus your center? Do you connect with Jesus every day? Do you pursue Him and seek Him and commune with Him throughout the day? Don't miss Jesus. Jesus, so far in Matthew, has been described as the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one greater than the temple, who values men and women and heals them. He fulfills prophecy. He's the chosen servant, the beloved of God, with whom God's soul is well pleased. The Spirit of God is upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He's not a loud shouter in the streets. He's compassionate to the suffering ones, and he'll bring justice and victory. In his name, all nations will hope. He knows the thoughts of men. He casts out demons because he's bound the strong man who is Satan himself, and he forgives all. All our sins against him. You don't want to miss Jesus. Don't do the motions of the Christian life and miss Jesus. Now in response to this opposition that's increasing, Jesus starts to teach in parables and to withdraw to increasingly Gentile territories away from the opposition. And in chapter 13, he re Matthew records just shy of a dozen parables. And one of them um, is this one. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells <clears throat> all that he has and buys that field. And the point of the parable is pretty clear. The kingdom is worth it. Whatever you have to pay to get the kingdom it's worth it. You'll have no regrets. And if you remember when I, when I taught this parable, I talked about stories of people who went to yard sales and for 75 cents bought a, a record. It was worth $25,000. A little girl buys a comic book. It's worth $48,000. A guy finds a bicycle. It happens to be Floyd Landis' bicycle who won the Tour de France. It's an $8,000 bicycle. He could sell for $4,000 on the spot. He paid $5 for it. And he's not walking around saying, oh, man, I hate that I blew five bucks on that bike. You know, he's not regretting it because it's worth it. And Jesus says the kingdom is that kind of deal. Whatever you sacrifice to know and worship and follow Jesus, it's way worth it, Jesus says. Is, is that your great pursuit? To know and worship and follow Jesus. Jesus says it's worth it. Whatever it costs you, it's worth it. 
And he tells another parable, and I want to underscore it briefly just so we don't miss it. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a net that's thrown into the sea and gathered the fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be, Jesus says, at the close of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says, just the way fishermen sort out good fish from bad, keepers from the ones you throw back, God's going to do that. There's going to be a great sorting out one day. And people are going to be kept or thrown back. And they're thrown back into judgment, Jesus says into a fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. How confident are you that in Christ you stand righteous before God? A righteousness that is by faith, but also a righteousness that manifests itself in a changed life. How confident are you of that? This may be the most important thing in all of Matthew's gospel for you is to make sure that you trust in Jesus in such a way that you have a confidence that when the sorting out day comes, you'll be kept near to God and will not face His judgment. Well, at this point, Jesus has withdrawn and He's taught in parables and now He's heading back to Jerusalem to die. In chapter 16, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And on his journey back to Jerusalem, you remember he withdrew, took three disciples and went up on that mountain where he was transfigured. This is chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his faith, face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter starts rambling on. He doesn't know what to do with this. And then it says, while Peter is still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud, the voice of God, said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You really should listen to him. Listen to Jesus. When the, when the disciples looked up, everybody else was gone and they only saw Jesus. And that's the point. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is exalted as one above Moses and above Elijah. And he is the one that we are to listen to. And Here's that theme again. Are you listening to Jesus? Is there room in your day to open the word and let God speak to you? Are you too busy for God? Can you show me in your calendar time you've set aside to protect, to listen to Jesus? He is the Son of God whose glory is brighter than a flash of lightning. You really should take time to listen to Him. Maybe that's what God is prompting you about so far through Matthew. Well, they descend the mountain. There's this tremendous um, kind of a rhubarb we used to have going on down there, an argument between Jesus' remaining disciples and the Pharisees because the disciples could not cast a demon out of a little boy. And the disciples are frustrated by this, and they come to Jesus privately, and they say, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, 
and it'll move and nothing will be impossible to you. Now Mark tells the same encounter from a little bit different angle. When Jesus entered the house after this experience, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast the demon out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And when we taught this, I said that those two things go together because their faith was little faith in a sense that it was misplaced faith. It's entirely possible that the disciples tried to cast out this demon based on their training and their experience and their commission and their giftedness and their pride and not by prayer. As crazy as that sounds, they tried to cast out the demon without prayer. This kind only comes out by prayer, Jesus says. And we talked about how that sounded crazy to us because we would never try to do anything important without praying, right? That would never happen to us. We would never run ahead of God. We would never try to accomplish anything significant. We'd never walk into a meeting without prayer. We would never discipline our children without prayer. We'd never um, prepare for school without prayer. We'd never go shopping without prayer. We sure wouldn't work out without prayer, or we would never come to church without having prayed first, right? And as a result of that sermon, a large portion of the church came forward at the close of the service to pray and ask God mercy and strength for their prayer life. Were you one of those people? Have you been working on that? Not running ahead of God and trusting in you, but instead praying as a demonstration of your trust in God? Have you been following through on that? That may be what God is reminding you of today. Well, our time is gone, and hopefully the remaining um, chapters from 18 to 20 are fresher in your mind where Jesus was teaching about things like um, how to pursue one another in love. This process, it's sometimes called church discipline. That means we will lovingly pursue people of North Wake if they fall into sin and refuse to repent. We will, we in love, we will pursue you. And Jesus lays out a process. Um, we learned about forgiveness. And Peter said, how about... How about seven times? Should I forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus says, how about 70 times seven? And he calls us to, to forgive as we have been forgiven by Christ himself. He tells that amazing story about a $10 billion debt that was forgiven a servant who then wouldn't forgive. He talks to us about what greatness is like. He talks to us about the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And little children get into the kingdom, but important rulers may not. He talks to us about how it's impossible without God to get in the kingdom, that nobody deserves it. Nobody deserves it. Not the greatest among us. And in verse, the closing verses of chapter 20, Jesus says, It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, Jesus, remember, we're, is calling us here to be like a busboy who just serves people more important than us, like a slave who has no rights of his own but to serve those that God puts in our lives. Um, we must follow the example of our Savior. What have you learned about Jesus? 
What have you been reminded of that makes you want to worship him and follow him more in these 20 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew? What does it mean for you to be obedient to that prompting, to really follow him in prayer, in humility, in witness? What? What does that mean? Let's spend a few moments and bow before God. Let's just pray and ask him to speak to us. And then the worship team is going to come and lead us in a closing response of worship. So would you bow?